Um, and yeah, we, we're going to be talking about the emergence of the multipolar world, or mm. the acceleration of the multipolar <laughs> world. We are all accelerationist subjects now. If you're out there doing like Nick Lanshin saying we have to accelerate, we have to like heighten the contradictions, we need to immunitize the eschaton or whatever, you missed the boat, man. It's being immunitized right in front of you, and it's happening really fucking fast. Right. Um, we actually intended to, to have this, well, this last week we intended to do an episode on China we were both prepared to do a, a deep dive on that and an episode that was sure to piss off a lot of people but was going to be right. good and we, we still will do that but um, events have a way of interceding <laughs> right I mean uh, basically anything that I would have said on China a week ago about trends in China's development in Africa about its internal development, about its worker strikes etc well, that's all up in the air now. Yeah, everything's up in the air now. And uh, China's still going to come up a lot today because um, we do have to look at its major relations and the, and the strategic calculus of the world. I also find it interesting. Um, and I don't really know why this is the case. This is, this is just I'm something I'm noticing. Despite support of of Russia kind of I mean they didn't they didn't veto with Russia during the Security Council meeting which I think actually surprised both the West and Russia um, but it's a perfectly logical thing to do they have for example sent in like okay so the card system Visa MasterCard no longer works in Russia it's totally cut off well, now there's a Chinese card system coming in to... Unibank is coming in to save right. that big... What's it? Sved, Svedbar? The, the yeah, Svedbar. Yeah. But in another sense, when people are like, oh, what they're going to de-dollarize. I actually think de-dollarization, I've been looking at it, was happening anyway. But even though 30% of of global trade is in, uh, is in Yuan, um, only about... Four percent of reserve currencies is in yuan. The reserve currencies are still uh, there. It's less and less the, the the dollar actually, but the basket has a lot of yen and euros and pounds. Um, that People are still- pooling and they're hedging, especially Russia mm-hmm. since twenty fourteen mm-hmm. right. has been pooling and hedging. Uh, allegedly to to anticipate an American sanctions regime that right. has come on way harder. I think the sanctions regime, yeah, everyone thought the sanctions would be light. I remember talking to Dr. Kuba uh, Rosnowski um, about this, and he's like, well, it's mostly virtue signaling this early. We'll see if they actually maintain it. It looks like they're maintaining it and maintaining it hard. Now, we won't know how long, because I suspect uh, NATO's gambit here is that they have always known that they were going to sacrifice Ukraine. Um, yeah. I don't know that there's no smoking gun here, but the strategy looks like once things went down the way they did with Euromaidan and uh, all these sides slipped on Ukraine like vultures over the cracks that have been going on between going all the way back to uh, uh, Yushinko and Tomasinko versus Justakovic, uh, Yanukovych, um, in 2004 in the Orange Revolution. Um, you what you see is a trajectory of increasing instability. Um, the two poorest nations in Europe would be Moldova and the Ukraine. Um, the, the reasons for that are complicated, 
even even they're even poorer than like the other post-Soviet spaces like Belarus and Belarus, and yeah. Belarus uh, developmentally has done far better, and we're talking about uh, Russia and um, Belarus with uh, you know GDP increases of one to two percent over the last. But that's been good vis-a-vis like Ukraine. Yeah, you know. the Ukraine's had net GDP loss since 1992, right. and if you if you know what one G, uh, what one percent GDP growth has done since 1992 to Russia, which is like the uh, a loss of something like what a, a fifth of the older male population. Um, I mean. I mean, Russia's been been hit in population over and over and over again. Um, and the human tragedy that's about to unfold there. I mean, talk about we should really uh, put this forward to the human tragedy of what's happening to the Ukrainian people right now. And then we're going to see a tragedy for the Russian people again. Is it going to be as bad as, you know, the the 1990s? We'll see. We'll We'll see how quickly things between russia and china and the rest of the world economy can integrate to try to save a real human catastrophe the oligarchs do not think uh and i can tell you this because i've been reading up on them do not think that this is that that somebody said this is going to be three to four times worse than 1998 which is the which is where the 92 shock really hit when the Um, the russians defaulted on 40 billion dollars worth of uh debt and needed a, a a bailout Right, and, um, and Putin's current law that like debts to hostile countries will be repaid at one to one with rubles just means they're defaulting. That's what right. it means. Yeah, there's um, several payments that are due this month. There's one for five hundred million dollars. These are uh, bond payments, um, right? For five hundred million coming up in a week, and then there's another for five hundred million. Then there's a two billion uh, coming up in uh, April. And this is the, the the effects of this, as we're going to talk about, because let's let's let me step back again, too, because we talked about this before we came on, is that there's so many people who have gone from being, I guess, like um, expert amateur epidemiologists during the covid shit who were like expert um, electoral politics theorists when it came to the rise of Bernie, uh, who are now all of a sudden geopolitical experts. Yeah. Well, you and I, I, I think I like to think that, you know, we have a decent track on these things. Uh, and, and also, I think some important speculations on how things have gone, some history of how it's been. What we can add, I think, to this discussion is the thing that's often left out um, in left discourse, which is the political economy of all of right. this. Because ultimately, like we set this up. This is our, what, fourth episode now. Yep. We already set up um, our theories on crisis. We already talked about where the capital world economy has been uh we've talked about the perpetual depression that we've been in for the last 12 or 13 years and also the reaction to that which has been a slow accretion of um of historical change uh de-dollarization you mentioned that's an important thing we need to talk about but also you know and i've been seeing this more and more over the last year de-globalization and this is a decisive break in that but then importantly too something that because of the ideological disposition i think of a lot of people on the so-called left who end up picking one of the the two great blocks of great powers and, and choosing them to root against the other. We've also seen a wave of uprisings and insurrections in many of the post-Soviet states that are in question right now. Kazakhstan, you know, mm. one month ago, went into a, a full revolt. And these are the sorts of things I that we think, I sh- you know, are, are important. The strike wave is more intense in China than it is in the United States. Right. Like, so we talk about a strike wave in the United States. 
uh, what's happening. What what have been the the aftershocks of COVID, which of course we're very much still dealing with. When we talk about, which we will, the economic effects of sanction and war. You know, this is any inflation that comes is on top of, of course, the dislocation and the rising commodity prices that came from this epic global public uh, social crisis of COVID. So. This is a global realignment that we haven't seen since since World War II. And I want people who think that this is going to pivot overnight to look back to history. Um, I know this doesn't, this is not going to be obvious to people, but the complicatedness and energy suck of even our technology systems right now I literally did an interview today with Dre Monroe on on the physical infrastructure and the limits of that um, for our, our our clouds and the kind of complicated system that we try to maintain internationally, and, and the amount of comp, uh, international cooperation that's required. Uh, that is going to be greatly affected by the likely outcomes of this. And now, now I no longer see any other way for it not to be. Um, furthermore, um, all these countries, including ourselves, are going to be negatively affected by the sanctions. Uh, Putin's not wrong when he's saying that it's going to really hurt the West. He might be, I think he is wrong when he's saying that Russia might do better. Russia might do better in 40 years after he's dead. <laughs> um, and and I will say that because because while I am not a Putin apologist, as you know, Russia's economic grievances with the way it's been treated by by the West are are, are real. Its geopolitical grievances are somewhat real. But I'm going to go out and say that the timing of this, uh, and I don't know why it happened now. I don't think anyone really does, actually. But the timing of this... Uh, while it may be prompted by some things in November, and they've been planning for it in a, uh, for a while, clearly, um, is not based on any increased likelihood of, of the Ukraine joining NATO, because the entire time, as long as the Donbass and, uh, and Lukansk regions were destabilized, there was no way for Ukraine to join NATO Um because with an ongoing automatic... civil war yeah, uh, with Russian be... proxies on the ground. Right. Yeah. It's an automatic trigger of Article 5. Yeah. So you, while Russia's complaints against NATO and NATO expansion are valid, and we can talk into how that happens, uh, and while it is absolutely true that both the Ukrainian right and uh, the international order basically was able to, to, ironically, hilariously, ironically able to use um, the chaos caused by uh, Yanukovych's bluff of trying mm. to get a better deal for from Putin in the in the in the possibility of a Iranian Union by joining the EU um, it accelerated the tensions around NATO and the reason why it did is that and this is political economic as well and we should have known this in 2014 because this is also in the context of the Greek and quote pig crisis. <laughs> Right, the pigs. I remember the pigs now. Yeah, yeah. Portugal, so, Ireland, um, Italy, Greece, East, and Spain. Spain. Right, the pigs. So, in the pigs crisis, of which Greece is the most, you know, uh, dumpster fire version of it, that's happening at the same time as they are talking about EU, uh, um, EU accession. Uh, 
which that means it was never going to fucking happen. happen. And, yeah. and what has happened with the other Baltic states, except for Estonia, is what is is the EU's put on the table, but the economic conditions and the liberal the neoliberalizations you have to take to get into the EU are too hard for most of these countries to do easily. Um, and there's too many specific deals you have to make with the currently existing countries, particularly France and Germany, but with all the countries mm-hmm. to who all to, have veto power. Yeah. To, to fully incorporate in. So it almost never happens. Estonia did it. Now, the reason why you'd want it is, is uh, believe it or not, despite that neoliberalizations, it opens you up to a ton of quick crick's wealth transfer and developmental aid. Once you get in. Right. Um, Including and, exactly what Ukraine wants, which is programs to modernize agriculture. I mean, that's right. li- Ukraine literally needs that. If you want to talk about the the growth rates, I mean, mm. that's that's the real essential. They need uh, land reform. They need um, land reform, and and uh, they need capitalist improvement of agriculture, really, which the EU has various programs for, exactly. and protection of small farmers as well. Right, in, in a way that uh, that Russia just doesn't have the capacity to offer. It, it would if it could. Um, now this is the, let me just stop you and then I'll mm -hmm. let you continue. Cause I thought this was always really good about your episode with, uh, Dr. Kuba, which anybody who hasn't listened to that, maybe you want to listen to that first in order to get some of the background. Cause I think, I don't think we need to go over the entire thing, but just the, the realism when it comes to States and also the awareness that you don't need an op behind every scenes to understand the incentives of why a population or why a particular fraction of the ruling class would want to go in one economic direction or the other. It's not CIA versus FSB. You know, it's not no. President Xi uh, versus Brandon. You know, these these are things that you can discern by looking at actual events on the ground and the various incentive structures set up by the global order. But I'm sorry, continue. I want yeah, to I think you're absolutely right. And what and I, on a different episode with Dr. Kuba, we talked about how once this happens, the intelligence agencies come up, come like flies yeah. on shit, but right. it actually tends to be the opposite of the way most leftists think it happens. So in any of these situations, you're my Don, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, what will Arab happen? Spring. Arab Spring. What will happen? The the initial color revolutions, including the one in Iran. Uh, what will happen is you have an organic uprising. People will seize on it for political purposes. The intelligence agencies will swoop in, start investing money. They will have already invested money in all sides because that's what all these intelligence agencies do as mm-hmm. a diversification of assets. They do it. I mean, they did it in the States too, actually. Like they, they would do weird stuff in the 50s. I always bring this up. Like, yes, they sponsored the MFA programs, but then they also sponsored the pe- the right wingers protesting the MFA programs <laughs> yeah. because they were too communist. It was it, it, Vietnam it, in the 1950s when the French are still fighting uh, the Viet Cong. There's, you know, the CIA is going in already. You know, we're not even engaged in the war yet and buying up, like renting apartments, getting their operatives on the ground, setting everything up. If and when the situation arises, when you need to activate people in quote unquote American interest, which is, of mm-hmm. course, always conflicted in and of itself because you have various different interests going at it. But yeah, of course. And, and of course, different factions of the local ruling class 
Uh, and we, we saw this with those um, people's republics uh, in the southeast uh, of, um, of Ukraine when that breakaway happened. Various sectors of the, the local ruling class do glom on and try to influence events. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away, of course, from the actual social conditions that led to the uprising to begin with. But it's backwards to say that these incidents are merely you know, right. American deep state doing deep state shit. It's, 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 it's true to an extent, but it's a very shallow way to look. I just also people who yet another interview I did with, 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 with Dr. Kuba um, way back where we talked about, you should not assume these people are as competent as you think they are. And what, yeah. well, most leftists talk about these intelligence agencies as if they are both completely incompetent and totally competent at once. And I'm like that. And I'm like, look at right wing conspiracy theories. They do the same thing. Yeah, like it's structurally the same. Yeah. So, what I what I would say is, um, what Russia was concerned about is that there becomes an incentive structure once you're granted EU accession but can't get it. It's much easier to get into NATO. NATO loves it. Now, this has been a debate going on in the, the in foreign policy circles in the United States about how dangerous this was going all the way back to uh 1992 yeah. and believe it or not the ghoul george kennan you know one of the <laughs> founders of our cold war policy warned that using nato in an expansionist way past germany breaking our agreement with gorby mm-hmm. um which it's never been formally proved that we have the agreement with gorby but there's plenty of evidence that it existed um, certainly evidence that putin and other high members of russian you know, uh, government and society believe that there was that. Yeah, and there is also evidence uh, on our side that uh, some of the policy realists also suggested it. Mm-hmm. Um, but George Kennan said we should not be expanding NATO past Germany. Um, there was a move in the early aughts to include Russia into NATO. Uh, that That, at the time, Putin was even still interested in it. Uh, it became a lot harder to do after in the 2000s, though, because Poland was incorporated into NATO, mm. and the Polish-Russian tensions are too deep yeah. to be immediately dispersed. So, yeah. so there you go. And that, and that leaves the Ukraine where the Ukraine is. You've already talked about uh, on your show with, with Gindler the the deeper history of the region. Mm-hmm. Um, the history of all the region there is complicated. And the one thing people need to understand about Eastern Europe is Eastern Europe is rife with nationalism because the national consolidation projects are newer and they were stalled by both World War II and, and the Soviet Union. And whereas even in Western Europe, where the nations are still newer than we realize, you know, we talk about people talk about Italy as if it has a history going back thousands of years. And I'm like, Italy is, Younger than the United States yeah. as a consolidated yeah. nation. Garibaldi uh, and Mazzini were 19th century, you know, mm-hmm. historical figures. You're talking 30 years after 1848. This is you're also, confusing civilizations with with, with and even the civilizations. States. Frankly, is a little overstated because all well, these, that's true. Yeah, I mean, all these things, all these places found civilizational myths, real civilizational truths, which they had some real historical lineage to, but they. You know, Italian culture emerges from Roman culture. Well, 
there's a lot of Roman cultures before the consolidation of Italy. If you look at the, the history of a place like uh, France, you know, mm-hmm. and then it's got a relatively recent, but also like an old, old, old civilization. It's essentially like a, a small uh, ruling class based around Paris that ends up spreading its civilization to encompass all of France. And then eventually half assimilating and integrating, but also half dominating people like the Bretons, the Occitan, the, the Provençals or whatever. And then of course, yes, yeah, so the night, the romantic nationalism of the 19th century, you have this big wave of trying to create, you know, these, everybody wants lists. to be an England or a France who had that happen <laughs> two or 300 years earlier. Right. Right. Like, so that's, and, 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 and also the Soviet Union engages upon this as a uh, as a modernization project. And in fact, frankly, Stalin does in his initial respect in his initial respect of Lenin's state policy um, what no one else in Central Europe had been able to do, which was to nationalize and detangle areas that have been ethnically intermixed because they've been under intermixed empires for 15, you know, 1500 years. I mean, it's, um, right. You have the epic, uh, transfer of peoples, you know, mm -hmm. not just after the first world war, but especially after the second world war, you talk about the creation of, uh, of uh, modern nation states in the 20th century in Eastern Europe. So much of that is through brutal uh, population transfers, Germans, of course, but also Poles and also the uh, Crimean Tartars and all sorts of, and uh, you know, let's not forget before that the uh, modernization and nation state creation of Turkey, which right, was the Ottoman bloody, empire, which, uh, which, yeah. Yeah. I mean, from, and, from and, a cosmopolitan and, empire into an ethnic Turkish nation state right. and, and, requires the massacre or the expulsion of millions upon millions of Greeks and, and especially Armenians. Turk Turkishness was also defined because they had no good genetic way to define it. It was defined in religious terms, ironically, mm-hmm. even though Ataturk was a secular leader. Um, people of Greek descent who were Muslims, they were Turks. And if they spoke Turkish and people who of Turkish descent, uh, who were Christians were Greeks, and that's how it was kind of decided. Um, and and similar things happened in Eastern Europe. Uh, we had the you know the great proliferation of writing systems the Soviet Union did, but mm. you also had the fact that this created some problems for Stalin pretty quickly. Um, okay, so that's the deep history, right? Um, and that's that's informing the context here. Except when you jump forward. You have the Ukraine, which is the poorest nation in Europe, needs modernization desperately. Its political situation is is a problem. Is a problem. They actually rehabilitate Yanukovych, and he gets in. But he's he's. I mean, if if he was a a purely Putin stooge, Putin needed to pick a better stooge. <laughs> um, he he incompetently tries this bluff. Well, people realize what they could get from EU accession and swoop in now priorly speaking russia had not cared about eu accession the situation with finland where you don't have nato and it's a neutral territory but they have access to european markets is actually good for russia Mm. if that had happened um and yanukovych had pulled it off then that either either situation could have been okay 
for Russia. But what Russia predicted would happen because of the expansion of the of of, of NATO to the Baltic states up into the Georgia crisis mm-hmm. um, was. Um, was that, no, that's not going to happen. There's no way, given what's going on in Greece and Italy and the fact that the EU seems super fragile right now, that that's not just going to be a bait and switch for NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, Which further, means, of course, intermediate um, missiles, intermediate uh, whatever, right. like potentially nuclear missiles five minutes from Moscow. Which well, it, Let me tell you about why why they care so much about NATO, even though we know that MAD means that we're not actually going to directly attack Russia. Let's we hope don't, not. <laughs> yeah, but that's never what they were. I don't think that's ever. They they may be afraid of that, but I don't think that's their primary concern. Hmm. Their primary concern is that with NATO, we can really mess with things through the back door and have a way to, they think, use NGOs and not totally wrongly right. to destabilize things and put them in a Libya situation where they we don't ever directly attract them. We just internally undermine their government. And they also have reason to believe that. Uh, Brzezinski, I think, put out in the late 1990s, famously, the, the what was he, the foreign policy guy under Carter, was mm. talking about the benefit of splitting Russia up into three constituent parts, uh, European, Siberia, and uh, I don't know what the third one, Asian. Mm. Uh, and, and now we see in all of the chatter from the commentariat, which has been bloody and stupid this entire last week uh serious talk about regime change and that represents like i I think one of the poles of american policy towards russia and it's one that um you know for obvious reasons you don't want those proxies right next door to you you know right so this leaves ukraine in its own internal situation so for a variety of reasons um i think european and western military advisors encourage them to integrate a lot of the right-wing forces that fought during Euromaidan into the security forces. Now, this is actually a tactic that uh, people hear about this with all kinds of, of things. You know, in the West, we have tons of we have tons of right-wingers in the military. Yeah, the thing is, though, you shut them out of leadership. Mm. That's what we do in the West, too. You shut them out of the, 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 the high leadership. If you get a two uppity right-wing general... They become they get they get booted out. They become Michael Flynn. Yeah. Flynn, exactly. Uh, yeah. right. You get um, you get nice liberal uh, in, uh, internationalist uh, MAs and PhDs up right. there in the ruling echelons, you know, but, to ensure that they're serious brokers of America. Right, right. Basically, the idea is like you have a bunch of Eisenhowers up there, but mm-hmm. but you have you allow the wackadoos in because the theory is you control them. Better to have them on the inside pissing right. out, right? Yeah. Right. Well, the problem with with this in the Ukraine, not only is there regional tensions that play into this, there's also the fact that the Ukrainian security forces, while it was a nuclear armed state, and still a pretty, it still has a not insignificant arms industry, which we should not forget. Hmm. A tank uh, factory just got bombed yeah. yesterday. I saw. Yeah, so I they mean, still yeah. make their own tanks, which is you know a lot for these days. Right. They 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 still had a lot of their Soviet arms stuff. They they denuclearized, but that was it um so so you have all the soviet era arms industry there okay um and you have these these right wingers this is i do not know this for a fact but my theory is what happened is that the reason why the 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 kind of moderate oligarchs like tomashenko uh 
was was okay with this integration of the right wing security forces into into the situation was an attempt to limit the amount of power they could do because they are willing to kill Ukrainians too. Mm. Yeah. All right. We we saw it. I mean, you can go online. And this is why, again, you have to understand the nuance and the complexity of this, because I could go on Twitter right now and I could find a um a video from 2014 of uh Ukrainian National Guard Azov or IDAR battalion, I don't know which one it is, literally crucifying Ukrainian citizens and beheading them and and whatever. Like right. these are hardcore dudes. So when so when you talk about denazification, which is, you know, Putin's thing, you know, you're talking about a real thing. You know, it's not that the entire Ukrainian state is neo-Nazi or the entire military force, too. But as you say, this is like a not insignificant portion of not just the military, but of um, Ukrainian society that when you have this sort of stunted nationalism, of course, too, um, this immature nationalism. That, uh, you know, certain figures from the 1930s and the last kind of uh, experiment of nationalism come through, like Stefan Bandera and um, famous for killing Jews and 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 Poles, Poles, yeah, which which also is interesting, given the whole Galatian Western Ukraine's relationship to Poland Um, uh, and also with tensions right now, because, uh, you know, a lot of those people are heading to Poland. Um, So when you look at that that political economy you have a, a massive agricultural sector but it's highly underdeveloped even compared to russia mm-hmm. you have a, an arms industry but it's shut out uh you have the hangover from soviet heavy industry especially yeah. in that in that southeastern part um the breakaway republics and in that region to a lot of steel a lot of heavy industry so you have like a lot of steel mining extraction but this is not the economy we associate with even developed Eastern Europe. This is not even Poland. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is a very, uh, our Estonia, um, mm-hmm. this is a very different situation ge- uh, economically, um, geopolitically, etc. Now, Russia has been trying to get out of its bind for a long time. It has been overly dependent on energy commodities. Its vulnerability was shown massively to it with the oil crash of, of, uh, of 2014 which also hurt Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to talk about that, though, a little bit, because there's a tendency to believe that the United States, somehow at gunpoint, forced the last prince of Saudi Arabia to just pump out oil just because, just at our, even though it undercut our own industries here. Right. We, we were in the middle of our fracking boom. You right. know, with uh, everybody who's you know knows anybody in this Canadian country, tar sands. we screwed yeah. Canada with it too. We screwed. Well, I do think there was political malfeasance going on in there from the United States, but from one element of it, what people need to understand is, even though I'm not part of the elite, I, you know, I'm just a working class teacher. Uh, uh, well, I, former working class teacher. I don't know. I totally consider teachers working class anymore. But anyway, whatever. Sidebar. Um, Sidebar. Um, I I did have jobs as international schools where I was at international schools where we got access as part of benefits working school to the foreign clubs. The foreign club was full of diplomats. Mm. Um, and one thing you learn very clearly is that shit's a lot less unified, even periphery, than you think. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, the people I've known who worked as contractors, and I've known several people who worked as mil- uh, military contractors, confirm. 
that 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 the idea that the elites in the United States have a unified interest is just not remotely true. So the other thing then, well, why did that happen? Why were the, Saudi Arabia pumping that out? Well, it it was probably in line with some of the U.S. geopolitical objectives, but it was also in line with Saudi geopolitical objectives after the Iran nuclear treaty and Iran could export more of its oil. Mm. Undercutting the oil took care of some of the geopolitical tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran with the knock-on effect of really re- setting Venezuela into a hyperinflationary path mm-hmm. uh, because if Venezuela has to, it didn't choose to. People are like, well, what... Why didn't it adopt MMT and not peg to the dollar? Because it can't buy shit otherwise. Um, uh, so Venezuela. Now we have to make sure it doesn't peg to the ruble. That's why there's U.S. ambassadors down there right. cozy well, up to the Maduro say, regime. They're not. They would never peg to the ruble. They would peg I to know, the yuan. But <laughs> right. But but, the, but this is part of the scrambling of geopolitics we're seeing in real time at this right, point. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean this week this week has been wild in that and this is why people should be expect a ton of black swan events. In the beginning of the week, uh during the sanctions on on Russia, the Biden administration was trying to put time bomb sanctions also kind of sneaking them in on Cuba and Venezuela. Mm. That is already over. They're now making four ways into into increasing our relationship with Venezuela to not just early Chavez, you know, pre-19, pre-2014 levels, but like real deep uh, integration. Um, President Guaido is sitting there on the sidelines like, what happened? Exactly. (laughs) Um, And. I'm about to tell you, uh, between that, uh, I I was predicting that the massive economic stuff we're going to be seeing was was going to be the tightening of the of the world currency for everywhere outside of the yuan. Yuan already is pegged pretty high through state to through uh, Chinese uh, double exchange yeah. system, state currency policy. Yeah, yeah um, but with that. Uh, with, with all the world's banks saying they were about to not Volcker shock us, but Volcker shock us by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. over the next. I don't know. If we're going to see that now, but um, you don't think we're going to get those seven rate hikes that the Fed was talking about up uh, until well, last week. I think there's other things that are going to be tamping down. On, on I Bravo. think that there's going to be a lot of and we're going to see dribs and drabs over. There's going to be a lot of propping up. You know, similar to what we've seen over the last 12 or 30, maybe even accelerated now, given that uh, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of like the global pool of loanable funds has all of a sudden just disappeared right. um, from, you know, the ability for banks to borrow at spot trades and stuff like that. So, yeah, Anyways, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, in, in terms of raw production, uh, Russia is not Russia. The reason we'll get to how this all ties into China in a minute. And this is probably people are like, Whoa, but <laughs> the, the, the reason why Russia doesn't have that many, uh, that much ability to leverage. The only leverage they really had was their gas to Europe because of Germany in particular's denuclearization policy, whether you like it or not. Um, Europe did not come up with, alternatives to nuclear power it just outsourced it to russian gas right it punted uh, right uh 
Russia's economy has been the way a lot of uh, extractive economies have been set up, whereas it the the Soviet investment in in in, in things like uh, large industry still kind of exists there, but but investment in productive industry has not been Russia's major priority. While it does have, and, and it's been interesting because I was like, Russia's interesting in that it has a ton of food, um, in in terms of grain. It's a gas station, and yet its productive capacity means like there's not a lot of Russian goods on the market. And I'm like, I'm like, and not just here, I've been all over the world. I don't buy, I've never bought a lot of Russian shit. I bought Chinese stuff. I bought all kinds of stuff. I've never bought that much manufactured in Russia. It's just not what they do. And people like, Oh, America doesn't manufacture. Oh no. America's still the second or third, depending on the week. Yeah. Uh, largest producer of stuff in the world in absolute terms we produce right. far more than we ever did during the height of like the 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 new deal consensus and before right. neoliberalism or whatever by relative terms less but yeah i mean it's it's, it's different terms, blah, bro, it's a bro, different bro. package of goods of course a lot of like production goods and a lot of like we do a lot machinery. of we do a lot of uh specialized uh raw material stuff like we do special like our steels better and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and then we do a lot of finishing Mm -hmm. but what people don't understand is the chinese and american and european production chains are very well integrated yes and when you talk about them you're talking about the three most productive economies in producing raw commodities on the planet and why americans don't think we make anything is because We've automated it, but that is also increasingly true mm-hmm. for it's definitely true for Europe. And it's it's been increasingly true for China, too. 100 percent. Since the strike wave of 2010. I mean, right. that's when you really saw the Chinese strike wave, as people might not know, in the auto industry there, which was a, a true. Obviously, it has to be a wildcat. Uh, like a massive strike wave in 2010 kind of oh, signals yeah. the end. All strikes end. are wildcats in China. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and syndicalists are like, woo. But uh, no, that that's sort of like, that's uh, that's a kind of like a, a, a moment, a shift uh, in right. Chinese political economy where this like endless well of um, surplus labor from the, you know, proletarianized um, uh, reserve army of labor all of a sudden reaches its limits, um, physical and also productive. And then you start to see this increased you know, relative. Um, right. Yeah. And you see concern for the Chinese, the Chinese middle class here. So this is where China's role in this is particularly interesting. So China has not, has not fully sided with Russia in this. It has been one of the few States not to condemn them. That's of any significant development. Um, India also isn't, even though India and China were almost at war in the beginning of the COVID crisis. People forget this. They were yeah, up in the Himalayas. You had right. uh, firefights between there. And the reason, one of the reasons why BRICS fell apart ten years ago is the tensions between India and China. Those tensions are always there, and they're not going to go away. There's the two largest populations in the world. There's contested territory between them. There's contested territory between China and Russia too, mm-hmm. um, and. And so there, that has been something that the U.S. has, to some degree, been able to uh, uh, utilize. I also think it's interesting, like in the denazification co- conference that's supposed to happen in August <laughs> with Saudi uh, Arabia and and uh, and, and in, in India <laughs> with Modi's India with the oh you know with the ties to the PKK, which is a Hindu-Buddhist yeah. fascist party, explicitly, literally uh, yeah. um, going back to the fascist period. 
Right. Um, yeah. So mutual defense organization that will beat the shit out of Muslims and you know ethically cleanse. Well, they, they talk areas. about their Semitic problem. It's just Muslims, not Jews. They, I mean, sure. it's literally like they, they'll use that kind of language. Um, incredibly reactionary regime there. I mean, I you know on the on the Chinese thing, I I get the sense that I got from reading about it is that they have to thread a needle because right, and they are, territory, in territory, and ter- territorial integrity is very important for China because China's ideology of development and where it sees itself in the the international order is as like a peacefully rising developmental power, not as an expansionist state. Then where that gets confusing, of course, is Taiwan, which is a frozen conflict from what, six, 70 years ago at this point in time. I mean, but, and China, China also, of course, has interests in rising within this international order, not outside of it. China does not want to cut itself off from the rest of the world. No. Uh, but they also, you know, see the, see an opportunity, I think, in order to that trillion dollar investment in Belt and Road that runs railroads through Russia partially, right, um, could potentially be threatened as well. So they're threading right. the needle. The, the Belt and Road Initiative, its peripheries is now kind of fucked. Honestly, you think so? Yeah, going through Ukraine, but it can now really focus in on Russia, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't think it's fucked overall, no, but I do think like these tensions are are bad. I I also think people need to realize China and the United States, in addition to having nuclear mutually assured destruction, have been as policy from both sides been engaging in what would be considered economically mutually assured destruction for yeah. for the entirety of the last 30 years. Yeah. And, and it's sub- re- it really ramped up of course under uh Obama uh mm-hmm. with his pivot to Asia in 2014 as American policy planners really started to see from the handwriting on the wall for the first time as American power continues to decline. But then of course too like you had Trump come in and continue those policies with tariffs and whatnot. So right. there's kind of implicit Cold War, economic, financial Cold War has started to ratchet ratchet up considerably recently. But China, why, had, yeah. China had been been uh, actually ratcheting down its hostility to the United States and its rhetoric in the last year. Mm. Like, and so had Biden. Have you did you not notice that in the beginning of the Biden administration, it was like we need to do basically we need to do neo Fordism for China, you know, to fight China. And now it's like. We're just not talking about that. Also, Russia <laughs> bad and yeah. moving on. And um, and it's I think I think what we've seen is there's a tightrope work. China sees an opportunity to be the dominant power in, the, in a new multipolar order, at least that would have more people in it mm-hmm. than any other block period, because it would also include India. Um, it. It also has to deal with the fact that Russia's gambit with Europe has unified Europe in a way that I don't think he expected. I don't uh, think maybe maybe you expected it, but I did not. I did not think that NATO could be reconstituted on such popular terms as it has. No, been me neither. Actually, so. I was surprised. Like when I'm now watching students do neoconservative like stunts on wheelless bomb policy analysts the way neoconservatives them like republican neoconservatives did on them in the aughts do you have you have you have university of chicago students who are calling to cancel john uh what's his name mersheimer uh, mersheimer who's like a conservative uh great power uh geopolitical realist as a as a as a putinist 
He's right. now a Putinist because he's he's talked realistically about all so the things that undo his funds. And I'm like, he's I'm like, he's not getting funding. He's, there are people, and we'll get to that. There are people doing fun stuff in this, particularly oh, yeah. in media because it's cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and effective, I, as it turns out. <laughs> one thing I realized, uh, well, it's effective in the highly online, but we must remember in my other research that the highly online people on Twitter are like five percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, you know, to get to with an outsized impact on general, yeah, um, with commentary, but general commentary is only really interesting to like 20 or 30% of the population. Exactly. The vast majority are not interested in either Twitter or CNN or Fox news. This is a normie book, but it's called the other, the other polarization or the other divide. And it's about the fact that like only 20% of the population, um, really gives a shit about politics and that's true in any that's even true now in our hyper polarized world uh-huh, uh-huh. it's just that um my thesis on what you the polarization when that's still true is that it has to do with regional economic interest under stress being the dot like the the people in whatever area go with the dominant most loud people because they're going to align with the economic interests of the area oh i think i go one step farther and this is my analysis of the trucker convoy is that ultimately all politics in you know western liberal democracies is the politics of the middle class it's it's Mm. it's like middle class people discerning the outlines of politics but under a dictatorship of the haute bourgeoisie but specifically the sort of uh, various material communities of capital that exist in, in different geographic regions where sections of the working class and middle class end up taking on the interests of yep. the, that ruling class, which is most materially important to them. Like if you're in Texas, obviously extractive capital mm-hmm. then becomes your politics, right? Because Yeah. And, and this is, this is an absence of a worker's politics. I think this is also true in these international conflicts that we're talking about right now. hundred so, percent. Hundred percent. I mean, that like the the easy way to look at Ukraine is as a um, a language based or like a cultural based thing, and you get a lot of this. You get maps based on like Russian speakers or Ukrainian speakers. But when you talk to somebody like Gendler, you see that it's much more complicated than that. That there's actually, of course, the deep economic interest between East and West, which are very different. Of course, the East literally oriented towards russia because it's closer and the west of ukraine literally oriented towards poland that's where their trade goes or whatever but um no it's like it's the political economy stupid at the end right you know i mean the political economy just happens to overlap with a lot of these other yeah other issues and and works well to obscure it find I mean, find a this is the this is the really hard part is find a material explanation for for uh, culture wars and i think that that's it and I think it also then uh, goes a uh, materialist explanation also for the geopolitics of this. It goes some 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 way towards explaining the sort of like popular furor between these things. The popular yeah. furor online, but also on the ground in places like Ukraine and Russia. Right. I mean, and so, so this puts Russia in a particular bind, though. Okay, one, it will. I'm not – and I hate to say this, and I know people aren't going to like it. And I don't say this as a supporter of of Putin. The conventional go- the conventional government of the Ukraine will fall. It will fall. It I will did, fall. Yeah. You already see Zelensky getting getting frustrated because he's realized that NATO, whatever promises he thought he had, yeah. as he's not a NATO nation, 
the most they're going to do, and I think they approved this today, is to give Poland better planes so Poland can sneak... And give them so- their shittier planes. <laughs> so Poland can sneak their Soviet-era scrap right. into the Ukraine by helicopter. I mean, I'm that- laughing, but it's it's not actually... It's not... It's it's not... It's just... It's like darkly humorous. Because yeah. if we gave them directly, it might trigger a war, but also like... So it's like, we know, and we have always known, okay? And this is where, like, I, I think some people who hate NATO should probably hate NATO... For the Ukraine side, instead of buying this this uh, clearly cocked up think tank, I've seen so many people who are anti-war turn into neoconservatives over this, basically. And by the way, who are the ghouls who are going to be resurrected? Um, I think you're, you're seeing this is going to affect our domestic politics in interesting ways. The, the mm. Democrats are still fucked. They're still yeah. going to lose this upcoming election. Yeah. Um, until this week, I would have told you, okay, we're going to have a resurgence of Trump. Who knows what that means? Who knows if he's going to win? It's going to be wild. Now I'm like, I think the Trump is based in silence. All right, folks. And that concludes the free half of Diving into the Wreckage 3 with me and Derek Varn. If you're interested in listening to the second, I don't know, hour or so, uh, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash the Antifada. Of course, Diving into the Wreckage is a collaboration between the Antifada and Varnvlog. So do check out uh, his YouTube and uh, Patreon as well, where you can actually see a video of our um, recording of this and our previous two episodes. And of course, the uh, episode four, which will be coming out next month on China. If you uh, are interested in content like this, we also, of course, have a ton, 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 like years of backlog of awesome episodes about history, political economy, culture. There's various different spinoff shows that all three of us do. And, of course, you can get access to our Discord and Patreon where you can talk and hang out. There's even a Mark's reading group in our Discord right now. So, uh, anyways, one more time. That's patreon.com slash the anti Fada. One last thing, of course, twitch.tv slash the Antifada. You can catch us streaming two, three, four, sometimes even five times a week. All right, folks. Thanks. <laughs>